Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, Episode 3, What Every Doctor Should Know About GI Issues, where I interview Dr. Danielle Marino, gastroenterologist at the University of Rochester and currently the fellowship director, about things that every doctor should know about gastroenterology. When I say every doctor, I mean like myself, an otolaryngologist, a pathologist, a radiation oncologist. What are GI issues that every doctor should be familiar with? We talk about the fun stuff, diarrhea, when to be worried about it, and when to be less worried about it. GI pain, when is that potentially a catastrophe, and when can you wait a couple days before really starting to worry? What's up with gluten? We get an interesting take on gluten from a gastroenterologist and some fun cocktail party facts about the GI tract. It was a fun conversation. I enjoyed it, and I know you will too. Welcome to episode three of the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. This episode is about gastroenterology. We have one of my good friends from medical school, Danielle Marino. Danielle, thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me, Brad. So Danielle and I were at SUNY Buffalo together, and then after we graduated, uh, where did you go? I did my internal medicine residency at Yale in New Haven, Connecticut, and then I started fellowship at the University of Rochester, and I stayed on there as faculty. So right now I'm an assistant professor of medicine there, and I'm the GI fellowship program director. Fantastic. Look at what you've done with yourself. So. that definitely gives you a lot of street cred when talking about all things gastroenterology. Um, and so today's show, we're just going to be talking about everyday facts that the general population should know about GI, but uh, more specifically, doctors should know. Because, you know, we've all had situations where um, one of our neighbors asks us for advice, and you might be a pathologist, and you don't know anything about gastroenterology except for one or two clinical rotations that occurred five or 20 years ago. And so, you know, you're expected to know things because you're a doctor, but they may be completely outside of your specialty. So, so today, Danielle, I want to talk to you about uh, some things that, that, that both of us think that just the, every doctor should be somewhat familiar with Um, as a disclaimer, uh, Danielle is employed by the University of Rochester, and I'm a partner at ENT and Allergy Associates. Both of us are currently representing ourselves and not our organizations, and so anything that you hear does not represent the views of those organizations, but are solely of our ourselves. Uh, that being said, uh, we're also going to be talking about some clinical information, and uh, we can bear no responsibility for outcomes that occur based on advice that you take here. So um, as the radiologists like to say, clinical correlations are recommended. Um, <laughs> so, so Danielle, let's start off talking about one of my favorite uh, activities, I guess, one of my favorite pathologies, uh, diarrhea. <laughs> All so, right. So this, this should be a fun one. So, so one thing is let's say the scenario that I have before my, uh, my neighbor is mowing his lawn and, uh, has to keep running inside, uh, because he has very bad diarrhea. 
So he sees me mowing my lawn and says, wait a second, you're a doctor. Let me tell you about my diarrhea. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that so, happens to me regularly. <laughs> I, would, I would imagine. But hopefully those are your patients and, and not your neighbors. But sometimes I, the male lady. Sometimes. Okay. Okay. I guess she sees those offers for a, a job in the Midwest by a lake an hour and a half from <laughs> totally. a metropolitan With setting. With a sailboat on it. Exactly. And she knows that you're being offered gastroenterology. So she kind of figured it out and, and mm-hmm. can now ask you. She's carte blanche to ask you for advice. And uh, yeah. and you have to give it to her. Otherwise, you'll get your mail. So, okay. So diarrhea. So so I want to break this down into to two things. Um, really, when is it time to worry? What are we looking for? So what are the important questions that we want to ask said neighbor? Um, Mm -hmm. and what are the potential catastrophes, but what are the horses, right? What are the things that, that it probably is? So first, what are the red flag questions that you're going to ask to make sure that it's not some potential catastrophe? I'd say the main thing is like, is there blood in the diarrhea? So if it's bloody diarrhea, it's probably something serious. It could be an infection, but if it lasts for more than a week or so, then it's probably something more than just an infection. Um, so if there's blood in it is probably the first question I would ask. Um, if there is, you know, I'm thinking something like inflammatory bowel disease, like ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease. Um, maybe even something like colon cancer. Uh, So those are bad. Um, Then you want to ask, like, are you having nocturnal diarrhea? So usually, you know, it's normal that people have bowel movements, usually first thing in the morning or after eating. And that's because we have something called the gastrocolic reflex. When your uh, stomach distends with food, it leads to peristalsis of the colon and you defecate. And Um, but if you have some sort of pathology going on, um, that may have you have diarrhea even at night. So usually if it's at night, that's something organic going on again, like inflammatory bowel disease, um, things like irritable bowel syndrome, which is super common and probably the most likely thing causing diarrhea in most people, um, people wouldn't be waking up in the middle of the night to have bowel movements. So nocturnal diarrhea is definitely a red flag. Um, blood in the stool. And then I'd say, you know, if it's going on for a long time and it's not abating, if there's any weight loss or signs or symptoms of dehydration, like lightheadedness, dizziness, palpitations, um, or any other kind of symptoms that go along with it, like vomiting or severe abdominal pain, those are all kind of things that mean that your neighbor should probably go see a doctor and not just talk to you while he's mowing his (laughs) lawn. So, so what, but what can we use to differentiate an ER visit from an out waiting for an outpatient appointment? So clearly dehydration, if you're showing signs of dehydration, you can't make an appointment for a doctor that may occur in a couple of weeks, right? Clearly that's, that's an emergent issue. So if there's, if there is, if there are signs of dehydration, go to the ER. If there's blood in the stool, so we have we've talked about this before, just to take a little aside. Um, should they have a hemocult test? Oh, Jesus. 
No. Okay. So a heme occult test is called that for a reason. It's looking for occult blood, meaning blood that you can't see. So, I mean, if it's frankly bloody, you don't need to do a heme occult. We know that it's bloody. So if someone's complaining of bloody stool, that doesn't necessarily mean they need to go to the emergency room. I mean, it kind of depends on the situation. If it's a copious amount of blood or if it's just rectal bleeding without diarrhea per se, yeah, that's probably warranting an emergency room visit. But if it's a little bit of blood mixed in with your diarrhea and it, it's been going on a bit, see a doctor as long as you don't have you know signs and symptoms of significant anemia or dehydration. You don't Got have it. to go to the emergency room for that. So anemia, dehydration, which can have you know, similar symptoms, those would be reasons to go to the ER. Otherwise, you know, just get to your uh, at least your internist, if not a GI doctor, pretty yep. pretty quickly. Okay, fantastic. So you also mentioned um, GI pain with with the diarrhea. Let's say the let's say he's mowing his lawn, and uh, he's 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 a little slow because he's got a stomachache. So he doesn't have mm-hmm. diarrhea. He doesn't have nausea or vomiting. It's just stomach pain. So mm. you know. Acute stomach pain, chronic stomach pain. Well, let's let's talk about acute really first. When when is this an ER visit versus an outpatient visit? I'd say you know there's a million things that can cause acute abdominal pain, but I I think if it's someone that doesn't normally have abdominal pain and they have severe abdominal pain, there's a lot of serious things that could be happening. So if This is a person that has no GI symptoms normally and all of a sudden has severe abdominal pain. No matter where it is, they really should go to the emergency room. It could be something serious like cholecystitis or cholangitis, diverticulitis, an abdominal perforation for some reason, um, you know, a perforated peptic ulcer or perforated colon, mesenteric ischemia. So there's a lot of like serious things that could turn into like a surgical emergency if ignored with acute onset of severe pain. That being said, you know, there are a lot of people that have actually like chronic abdominal discomfort and people who have irritable bowel or some what we call like functional abdominal pain, which is more of like a nerve related issue. And those people who have kind of chronic abdominal pain may have acute bouts of that. And they don't necessarily need to go to the emergency room every time. I think you you know, we need to take it in context of what the baseline is and things like that and where the pain is and if it's related to defecation and such. So um, clinical correlation recommended. Absolutely. Always. That's <laughs> <Okay. laughs> disclaimer, right? So if he's um, saying this is the worst stomach pain of his life, he should probably go to the ER. But if he says, but it's pretty similar to the stomach pain I had yesterday and the day before in the last few weeks, in the last few months, that speaks to the, the lack of lack of urgency because there seems to be a pattern. Yeah. And we've all seen the patients who claim they have 10 out of 10 or 12 out of 10 pain as they're, you know, on Facebook on their phone on Facebook, and eating yeah. Cheetos. <laughs> so like, you know, you kind of have to take it with a grain of salt and, and see what, you know, if they've had it before and things like that. But I, I actually have a personal aside about my own GI pain because I have you on the phone. So Free I'm going to take advantage of the opportunity. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> indeed. It's actually, it's not a consult. It's just, I, th- I think it's an interesting story. So uh, my wife and I were on uh, our honeymoon, which was a safari in Tanzania. Oh. So we were on the flight back 
Yeah, it was it was amazing. So we were on the flight back, and I started to get some stomach pain, and it was pretty bad, pretty bad. Uh, and it would happen after I got back every time I ate, and uh, I was just I just stopped eating because it was so severe. And I thought it was constipation. So I just tried treating myself with some over-the-counter stuff and, you know, nothing was working. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, I saw a GI. I had an EGD. Everything was fine. Here's what it was. She was pregnant with our first child. And this is apparently a phenomenon. <laughs> this is not unheard of for, for like, anxiety. And I'm sure you see this. Um, anxiety-related abdominal pain. Absolutely. It had nothing to do with the trip to Africa or having eaten something. I didn't have Giardia. It was just because I was anxious because she was pregnant with our first kid. So, so just, as, as uh, I like to say, the GI tract is the window to the soul. So whatever, <laughs> whatever feeling on the inside usually presents itself with, you know, some GI distress or, you know, they say butterflies in the stomach, you know, all those things are related to kind of what's going on in your life. Stress definitely affects the GI tract significantly. And that's because there's almost as much nerves in the GI tract as there are in the spinal cord. And really? The brain. Mm-hmm. There's like a ton of nerves and neurotransmitters, and it's really complicated between the brain and the gut uh, connection. But definitely they both interact with each other. So stress can cause... GI symptoms and GI symptoms can cause severe stress or anxiety or depression or, you know, other uh, neurological symptoms. So it's pretty interesting. Yeah. And it's hard to, sometimes it's hard to tease out, you know, what's an organic, you know, structural problem versus more of a nerve related issue. Yeah. That's probably one of the things that's more challenging for you to figure out when you're doing your outpatient consults, Mm -hmm. isn't it? Absolutely. Definitely. History is like huge. It's It's all about taking a really good history. And sometimes, you know, patients aren't really able to give you a good history. So sometimes it's difficult. You have to do, you know, some tests that maybe you didn't necessarily want to do, but you have to rule some things out. Sounds like that is the post-nasal drip of otolaryngology. (laughs) I can imagine. Or LPR. Or or LPR. (laughs) Well, that's the, those two things are intertwined. This like mucus sensation in your throat when they have normal nasal exam and laryngeal exam and everything in there <clears throat> all this throat clearing mm-hmm. it's it can be very very challenging to figure out so uh i guess we all have our own every specialty has their own post nasal drip yep so that was interesting what you said about the uh the number of nerve endings in the gi tract uh so that was something else that we wanted to talk about um what are some other cocktail party facts that you might be able to share with our listeners is there is there anything else that you even if you might find it interesting for you and you might think it's boring to us i i doubt that i think i'm gonna find it interesting well um okay one thing that people don't realize is that like there's no set definition of like diarrhea or constipation um so like it really just depends on the patient and the variation of normal is pretty big so we consider normal anything from like one bowel movement every three days to up to about three bowel movements a day Um, the rule of threes the poop the poop rule of threes 
the poop rule so, of threes. So every so as long as you're within three that day area, or every three days, all normal. Mm-hmm. But even, I mean, that's kind of wishy-washy too. Because if someone tells me, well, you know, my whole life I've had four bowel movements a day, and that's just been me my whole entire life, then that's probably normal for them. And I'm not overly worried about it, especially if it's not bothersome to them. So, I, I, it'd be hard to hold down many jobs with a bowel movement. Bowel that movements yeah, that's going to my, my patients would get pretty upset. Really? I'm waiting again because he's again. Really? Well, that's a, that's something that I find interesting. You know, some people take about 30 seconds to have a bowel movement. And for some reason, it seems many men take like three hours. To have a it's like, I kind of think you use it as an excuse to like hide away in the bathroom with your phone and like fall down a rabbit hole in the Internet or something. Shouldn't have to take that long. Uh, listen, those those patients then end up getting hemorrhoids. That's and true. Keep keep uh, colorectal surgeons in business. Oh, here's a, a fun fact. Um, so you know how and that we may sit. or may not include me. <laughs> <laughs> so you know how we sit in this country. We sit on a toilet um, yes. to go to the bathroom. I know, mm-hmm. Brad, you've done a lot of traveling, mm-hmm. and you see, like in other countries, people don't necessarily sit on a toilet; like they'll squat, squat down. Toilets. Yep. Yep. And so that's actually the best way to defecate because it opens up the anorectal angle. Um, there's a, a muscle that kind of is a sling muscle and pulls on like the rectum. It's called the puborectalis. And when you when you squat down, that actually opens up the puborectalis muscle and opens up that angle so the poop can come out easier. I would also imagine that you're because you're folded up like an accordion, you're also squeezing things a lot more. Yep. And it helps your abdominal mus- musculature, you know, work better than if you're kind of stretched out. And Probably so good for your back. Um, this is why, have you seen the Squatty Potty? Yes. With the like the weird unicorn. The unicorn who poops commercial. rainbow ice cream. Yeah. Are, are <laughs> yeah. you, so we didn't do any disclaimers at the beginning. Are you receiving any compensation from the Squatty I am, Potty? I have no financial disclosures. Okay. I have no I financial big, disclosures either. <laughs> I am a big fan of the Squatty Potty because that is the correct way to poop. They're right. Um, so I do recommend that to my patients a lot do. and it avoids straining and kind of prevents you from developing um, hemorrhoids. And it makes a really good Christmas present. I've given it to many people. Really? <laughs> we, that's funny because we give for, for, for newborns, we always give the snot sucker. Oh, God. That thing freaks <laughs> me out. Those, yeah. <laughs> that's so funny we give, that we both we give, give like gifts that are related to what we do. Specialties. Yeah. Well, we realize we... <laughs> find it useful okay so the squatty potty seems a a good alternative to standing on your toilet seat and then squatting down correct i have had a patient tell me that they do that though like just casually mentioned oh yeah my whole life i just put my feet on the toilet seat now was that person born in a country where that is a routine thing no just like decided it was a good idea She actually, I think she ha- she has a defecatory disorder. She has a oh. problem where her anal sphincter doesn't relax, and she kind of figured I guess, it out. realized that without knowing exactly what it was, and kind of worked around it on her own, and never talked to any doctors about it. So some people self treat things like anxiety with marijuana, and she self treats her anorectal dysfunction by <laughs> squatting down the toilet. Yeah, Squatting. well, that's yep. that's. I have to say that is pretty impressive. 
that she was yeah. able to figure that out and had just been doing it her whole life. That's, Agreed. Uh, and when uh, and when the patient told us that, like uh, when I went back in the room with the fellow, the fellow was pretty like shocked that yeah. the patient made her own diagnosis. Yeah, that's we were like, amazing. okay, we know what the problem is. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> So what, um, what, what about fun facts? Fun facts. So I, I have a question, just things that can turn your poop different colors, not, not pathologies, right? Like I remember there's yeah. something that causes khaki colored poop, right? Oh I yeah. Know. Well, like clay, clay colored. Yeah. That's when you have like a biliary obstruction. So got you it. lose the bile because the bile is what makes your poop brown. Makes it. Got so it. So if you lose your bile, you can have like a white. Sorry, clay, clay not, not khaki. I'm more of a, <laughs> That's a the bone or an eggshell. Yeah. The new J. Crew color. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> biliary obstruction pants. <laughs> Chinos, nail and biliary obstruction. <laughs> khaki. Um, yeah. Um, but what about stuff that you can um that you can eat that will turn your oh, yeah. poop different colors? So beets can turn your poop red. Okay. I do not like beets, thankfully, but beets can turn your poop red. Um, Pepto-Bismol can turn your poop black. And a lot of, I, I can't tell you how many times, like, we've been consulted for melana, which is, you know, black stool. It's supposed mm -hmm. to mean an upper GI bleed. Um, but really, it just turned out the patient was eating a bunch of Pepto-Bismol. And so that's why it was black. Iron pills can also turn your stool black. Well, hence the need for a hemocult, right? Because then, because that's not frank red <laughs> no, blood. That's like, no. I'm not sure if it's blood or not. Like, what about the beet so, patient, right? Like, then you're doing a hemocult on someone because you can't tell if it's blood or beets. So you can kind of tell the difference, actually. Yeah. I mean, it's red, but it's like, it's like a weird red. It's not like a blood red. That's that's what I tell so, my patients about tonsillectomy. So one of the things that you read on the internet after tonsillectomy is don't drink anything red because you won't be able to tell the difference if you're if you're bleeding, which is a common problem after tonsillectomy. You won't be able to tell uh -huh. your, if you're bleeding or if it's Hawaiian punch. And so what I tell my <laughs> patients is one of the risks is dehydration. So if all you can get your kid to drink is red Gatorade or Slurpee or Hawaiian punch, like we can tell the difference between Hawaiian punch yeah. and blood. Just get them, keep them hydrated. Absolutely. It's funny how those, those, misconceptions start yeah so have you ever smelled melana i'm sure you smell <laughs> melana. i mean people know like you can tell the difference between that at this and... point i've been doing otolaryngology for you know four years in residency and seven years and so 11 years so if mm -hmm. i've smelled melana it was over 11 years ago but i you know what i can still remember I feel like it. it's, it, right? <laughs> it's, it's, it's one of those things yeah, that you don't forget yeah it's one of those things i remember hearing in a lecture in medical school yeah, their poop really smells bad. But everybody's poop. Oh, wow. Yeah, Melina. Okay. Yeah, no, that yeah. is a whole. <laughs> it's a, a different whole level, level yeah. of bad. So you don't really yeah. need to test for hemocult because, oh my God, that is room clearing. Yeah. Right. And hemocult, so hemocult is actually made for colorectal cancer screening. There's really no indication to use it otherwise. It's not to look to see if someone's bleeding because it, um, can have a lot of false positives. You know, if someone has hemorrhoids and mm -hmm. they could from, have a, a positive occult. From sitting on the toilet for three hours on the tap <laughs> right. at a time. Absolutely. Going down or, a Facebook you know, rabbit hole. And especially getting like a rectal exam and then doing a hemocult, that's like a huge no-no. Even just putting your finger in can cause some minor anal 
trauma that can cause the hemocult to be positive. So if someone's GI bleeding, like, we'll know. Like, you know, you check their crits. Blood is a laxative. So if they're actually GI bleeding, they're going to be going frequently. They're not going to just have like one bowel movement a day or whatever their normal is. So like they'll declare themselves. We don't need the hemocult. It's not going to help us. Stop doing hemocult. And, and hemocult positive is not a color. So <laughs> we always ask, what color is the stool? And they'll say positive. No, <laughs> no. I've never seen that on a Crayola crayon. <laughs> It's like red, brown, or black. Like, that's what we care about. <laughs> or khaki. I mean, clay. Yeah. <laughs> um, whatever fun facts. Oh, uh, so your colon actually sees like 10 liters of fluid every day. And it's like really good at absorbing water. So um, it absorbs like nine liters of fluid every single day. That is, I don't know. I find that to be a fun fact. That is, that is, put people, uh, please that is, party with that. I, I'll, I'll, I'll supplement that fact with another fact uh-huh. you you generate a liter to a liter and a half of mucus a day between your nose and your mouth and that gets swallowed that's a lot that's a lot Ew. so yeah Gross. so that's the whole post nasal drip when people are like but i feel this mucus dripping down the back of my throat yes it's called sino uh, it's called sorry mucociliary flow the sinuses and the nose make mucus it's pushed posteriorly by the cilia on purpose. and on purpose in a very intentional way and a very specific way. Actually, you can, if, if things go off course, you can end up with something called recirculating mucus and that can be a nidus for a sinus infection. So it oh. ends up getting swept back posteriorly and then you swallow it. So all of that mucus is supposed to, is post nasal drip. So it is in fact normal. Hmm. Now it can be abnormal in the same way that you were you were saying about the GI tract, right? Like if you absorb a little too, um, or I guess a little too much. Like if you're dehydrated, right? Like you take a little too much water out of your stool, you're going to get constipated and very hard stools, mm-hmm. or a little too a li- just a little bit too little, and then you end up with diarrhea. You know, people are very sensitive to um, the sensation of mucus dripping down the back of their throat. So a little little too much mm-hmm. in a cold, and it can really bother you, or if your mouth is really dry, you end up with this very viscous mucus and people end up spitting and thinking that they're making too much mucus, but really it's just their throat is dry. So it's a little, a little otolaryngology aside for you. So mm-hmm. just another aside, please stay tuned because Dr. Marina will be back with another episode if you're enjoying this one. And I hope you are, because I certainly am, um, uh, about more, more fun and interesting GI facts uh, but we'll get a little more technical in, in the next one, and we'll talk about reflux, and we'll talk about uh, other other workups. Uh, it may get controversial, and it will certainly get exciting. But uh, for this episode, I wanted to talk a little about gluten. Uh, yeah, yes. we're going to get a little controversial now. So, so not <laughs> not not celiac uh, specifically, because that is a um, my understanding. It is a pathology based diagnosis, right? Absolutely. You need to have duodenal biopsies showing villus blunting to make a diagnosis of celiac. Okay. But what about all of those other patients who complain about gluten sensitivity and um, are celiac negative? And just to be clear, gluten is a, is a protein mm-hmm. that's present in wheat, and it's what gives dough its stickiness and and doughiness mm-hmm. so uh for the bake the baker side of me there you go nice so um 
Yeah. So there are a lot of people that are sensitive or intolerant to gluten, but don't necessarily have celiac. And um, that's because, you know, we're not really made to digest gluten all that much. And we end up taking in way more than we can handle. And so actually, most people would probably feel pretty good on a gluten-free diet. It's hard to do. Um, but gluten is one of those things that um, gets fermented in the GI tract um, and can cause a lot of gas and bloating and discomfort. And so there's a ton of people that just, you know, have symptoms with gluten. But it's actually really important to tell the difference between celiac and just gluten intolerance or gluten sensitivity. Um, because people with celiac, you know, there's actual damage happening to the small intestinal lining that can lead to a lot of other problems like osteoporosis. Um, the chronic inflammation in the gut um, can lead to things like uh, small bowel adenocarcinoma or small bowel lymphoma. And so it's really important to kind of make the diagnosis. Does this person actually have celiac disease or can they just not tolerate gluten? And that needs to be done before they go on a gluten-free diet. So a lot of times primary care doctors will have their patients go on a gluten-free diet or, or patients themselves or they read on the internet and they'll go on a gluten-free diet and they feel so much better. And then it's really kind of hard to convince them, well, okay, go back yeah. on gluten <laughs> go, so yeah. we can test Here, you. Have this loaf of bread right. that that's going to make you, you like extremely garbage. uncomfortable. Right. And uh, so we can uh, take a piece of so we can put you uh, through a procedure where we actually take a piece of you and give it to some other guy to look at under a slide. <laughs> Right. It's it's really hard to convince people to do such things, but it is important to know the difference. And then plus it has, you know, implications for families because it is uh, hereditary. So um, if patients do have celiac, then we would recommend getting their kids tested and stuff. So um, it is important to kind of sort that out. But yeah, lots of people just, you know, don't feel too good on gluten. It can cause bloating. Um, abdominal discomfort, diarrhea, gas. Sounds a lot like lactose intolerance, right? Like we, we haven't evolved to consume the amount of dairy products that we do in our modern society. And so this is our body telling us that, you know what, a little bit good for you, fine. Keep the, you know, vitamin A and D levels up, but, right. uh, oh, yeah, but you the, can the volume that you're eating. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Say again. You can overwhelm your lactase, you know, the, yes. the enzyme on your small bowel villi that kind of break down the lactose. Um, and actually, as we age, uh, the lactase goes away. So uh, like for certain like European um, derived derived i guess european ancestry <laughs> european descent yes descent thank you um <laughs> <laughs> there's a very high rate of lactose intolerance like as we as you age so by the time you're like in your 70s i think it's like something like 60 to 70 percent of like eastern european caucasians will have lactose intolerance so it's very common as we get older huh and can you upregulate it like by fighting the good fight and just kind of pushing through, <laughs> just pushing through and eating more and more cheese. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 that doesn't happen. No. Well, yeah. That's unfortunate. It is. It is. Cause I love a good cheese. Yeah. 
but fortunately, I have not yet developed lactose intolerance. That will be a. And those European cheeses are some of the best. My wife is Swiss, so we every so often we'll have a good stinky cheese, Mm. and it smells like feet, but it's delicious. Yeah, so the the good thing though is that there's like a ton of gluten-free products out there and they don't taste that bad. So, you know, for the people that it does bother or for the people with celiac, there are good options now. Whereas like a decade ago, people were it was horrible. There were really Oh good yeah. Options. Yeah, I mean there's like restaurant menus and mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's hopefully for the lactose intolerant community, there will be a similar revolution. But uh, that would be great. <laughs> or you could just take a lactose. Uh, it'd be, it'd you, be could do that. you could do that. Well, Danielle, this has been Dr. Marino. This has been very informative. Thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. It was a lot You're of fun. Welcome. It was and fun. I can't wait to have you back for uh, future episodes. Cool. Thanks for having me, Brad. This was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. Find all previous episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and write us a review if you have something nice to say. You can also visit us on Facebook. Search Physician's Guide to Doctoring.